preach you this morning in Jesus' name. It's a privilege to be here with you and to seek God together. I'd like to begin this morning with two questions for you to consider. You don't need to respond uh, except inside your heads. Did you encounter problems last week? And secondly, what was your response to the problems that you encountered? Question number one, I think I can answer for you, and you can probably answer for each other, because we live in a broken world and we understand that there are problems. Some of them are pretty minor. Some of them are more significant. Those of you that have lived many years have seen perhaps a lot of hard things in life. But the second question is a little less clear because there's a variety of responses that we can choose to the things that we face in life. What is our response to that brokenness, to the things that wear out, to the times we make misjudgments in life? to the times we experience misunderstandings, to the pain and the evil that we face. It seems to me that my tendency, and I'm going to be so bold as to suggest that it's your tendency as well, a human tendency, is that we fall into one of two ditches with our responses. The first ditch is that we might fixate on the problem. And by doing that, we make the problem really big because it's all we can see. That leads us, I think, to assuming too much responsibility to address the problems. Now, notice that I said too much responsibility. We do have responsibility in our responses. But often, I think, we assume too much responsibility and thereby we make God too small. So when I fixate on a problem, it makes me feel like I've got to take care of this. I've got to fix it. I've got to take responsibility here. It's my issue, my problem. And I kind of push God into the background. The second response, or the second ditch that I think is, is a tendency for humans is that we kind of dismiss the problem or push it aside and maybe we would say we make the problem too small. Maybe we say, I really can't do anything about it anyway. Or life's just like that. And by disregarding the problem, by making it too small, I try to operate or we try to operate as though there weren't problems, or the problem in front of us doesn't really exist. And so again, when we do that, we're leaving God out of the picture. We've reduced the problem to a size that we can kind of manage somehow, and we don't need God anymore. Or at least we don't need him very much, we think. So in both ditches, it seems to me that God is not given his proper place. 
This morning, in an effort to help us see God in the right perspective, I invite you to join me in exploring a few stories from the Old Testament to give us glimpses of God. And that's the title of my message this morning, Glimpses of God. Now, I want to say up front that this is not going to be a complete treating of this subject by any means. We don't have time to explore the whole of Scripture this morning. But I hope that in these few stories, we see at least a part of who God is that helps us to understand His rightful place in life, in our lives, and as we encounter things in life that are challenging, that are difficult, that are painful. And before I, before I go further, too, I want to say that I think there are some underlying things that you understand that, that are maybe foundational supporting things to how we then look at God. Perhaps these are other glimpses of God that we would see in Scripture, but I'm, I'm thinking especially of some things from the book of Genesis, where we see God creating and acting in that creation. From our Sunday school class, I understand that last week you were in Psalm 104, and that psalm is about God's creation and his working in that creation. But God acts in creation, and specifically he interacts with mankind, not in some sort of cold and distant way, but in a very personal way. Not like a chess player who's simply moving pawns in order to win the game. That's not God. No, he's operating in ways, interacting in ways that are for our good. In that interaction with God, in that interaction God has with mankind, let me just note a couple of more things. God is the author, the creator. And as the author, the one who originated things, the one in which all things begin, he works authoritatively. See, as the author, he has authority. And since he is the authority, it is right for him to give me and you directives. And my responses, when they counter the directives of God, are rebellion. Secondly, God is a judge. He is the one who sets the terms. He is the one who defines right and wrong. He makes value statements. He sets boundaries. I am accountable to him. And thirdly, God is loving. I've already hinted at that. In his provision for man, in his interaction with man, in the directives he sets out for us, there is love. It is with our best interest in mind that he acts in the world. In the four stories that I want to look at today, they're familiar to you, there are, there are four things that I want us to notice as we think about this God who is working in the world, working on our behalf. There are four things. I hope that we can see some element of mystery. I hope that we can see power. 
I hope that we will see that God's essence is found in his character. And fourthly, I hope that we see that knowing God is in relationship. Perhaps you'll still have your fingers in Exodus 3. That's where we're going to begin this morning. With that familiar story of Moses meeting God at the burning bush. Two things I want to, to focus on in this little this story, this account. I want us to explore a little bit how God appeared here. He appeared in a flame of fire. And then I want us to think about how he described himself. The name he gave himself, if you please. The I Am. First of all, God appeared in a flame of fire. I find it interesting that fire is, is repeatedly in Scripture part of the representation of God. We see it here in this, in this account. Um, on Sinai, at the giving of the law, God descended in, on the mountain in fire. In the wilderness, he led his people um, in part by a pillar of fire. In Leviticus 9... We have the story of how Aaron and his sons are consecrated as priests and they offer sacrifices. And then in verse 24 of that that, uh, chapter, we're told that fire came from the presence of God and consumed the sacrifice. The Israelites then took took coals from that fire and they used that for their sacrificial offerings going forward. At Pentecost, in Acts 2, verse 3, part of the expression of the coming of the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire. Now, there's ways, I think, that fire can help us understand God. We might quickly think of a few things, like it gives light, there's illumination, and it has cleansing properties, purifying properties. Now, twice in the book of Deuteronomy, and once in the book of Hebrews, God is called a consuming fire. And yet, here in the story that was read a bit ago in in Exodus 3, the fire didn't consume the bush. In fact, that's what caught Moses' attention. This was unusual because we think of fire as consuming something, and here it didn't consume. So maybe... The fire of God's presence, maybe it's a better way to think of it, is that it consumes some things. For example, when Nadab and Abihu used strange fire on the altar rather than getting coals from the fire of the Lord, this was soon after that fire came from the Lord and soon after these priests had been consecrated, but they used strange fire. And after that, they were consumed by fire. It's from Leviticus 10. And in a story later in, the, in Jewish history, the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram's rebellion against Moses, fire from the Lord consumed 250 men who conspired with them. Sodom and Gomorrah, two towns of significant size, were consumed by fire. And of course, hell is called an unquenchable fire. 
And so fire is a consuming thing, and we see that in Scripture. It's, it's an element of God in the sense that it is part of judgment. But here, the bush was not consumed. And we have other situations in, in Scripture that were, where fire didn't consume. For example, at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, we have a reference to the purifying agent that fire or heat is. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work, what sort it is. So it doesn't always consume. Sometimes in the right, the right ratio of heat purifies. So in fire, I see a fascinating and multifaceted metaphor of God. There is the lighting, the exposing, the illuminating of all, there's also the consuming, and yet not consuming the good and right, but rather purifying it, making it more completely whole. I find that as I allow light, God's light, God's truth, to shine on me, I become increasingly aware of places in my own heart, in my life, that need, that, that, that aren't good, that are ugly, that are wrong, that haven't yet been fully redeemed. And that exposure, the light of God shining in my heart, is necessary because I can so easily think that it's all pretty good. It's pretty much taken care of and forget that there is an ongoing element of cleansing that God wants to do in my life. And then, once I see it, what do I do with it? Just seeing it isn't enough. I need to allow God to purify it. Do I submit to the process of purification? And then there is the element of judgment of punishment. Those who resist God are described in Scripture as facing a punishment of everlasting fire. And so the question this morning, a question for us this morning is, when and what kind of fire will we submit to? The fire of purification or the fire of judgment? The second thing from this story that I'd like to, to examine a bit is what it is that God calls himself, or how he describes himself. In verse 14, in Exodus 3, we have this, and God said unto Moses, in response to Moses asking, who shall I tell them is sending me? God says, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I am. What kind of a name is that? What does it mean? How does it help us to understand God? You might remember from school days, grammar and verb tenses. We have here a, a sentence. I am is technically a sentence. And the verb is am, which is a, a, the present tense of the verb be. 
present tense. Not I was, and not future tense, I will be, but I am. That's how God describes himself. Somehow, it kind of blows my mind, but somehow in the past, God was the I am, and now he is the I am, and he always will be the I am. But maybe even that's not quite right somehow. You see, I'm so limited, we're so limited by time. We can't, we can't think outside of time. But God is the one who created time. And somehow I think we can, we can maybe understand it best when we just step back and say, He is. He isn't restricted by time. Somehow he transcends time. Well, we are bound by time. So I find in that, again, an element of mystery. God is somehow so beyond me that I find a hard time wrapping my mind around it. The second thing about this, this description, the verb that God used here in his name, this self-description, is what we call a state of being verb. It's not an action verb. And we use this when we, for example, introduce ourselves. If I were to meet you, I would say, I am Stan. Or if we describe ourselves, we sometimes use it too. I might say, I am a father, or I am tall. I find it interesting that God describes himself as a being rather than as doing things. Now, certainly God does things. I said earlier that he acts in the world. But here he's describing himself as, as, as being. What might that tell us about God? I wonder if we don't find it as, as physical beings, pretty easy to define ourselves and others by our doing. And I wonder if God isn't wanting us to start with not only his identity as first and foremost being, but also our own identity and others' identity too, being defined by who we are rather than by what we do. Notice, too, that these descriptions, I am a father, or I am tall, or whatever, are really only meaningful when we have some sort of point of reference. I'm tall is only meaningful in the context of understanding that we're talking comparatively, say, about human beings in general. It's not very meaningful if I'm talking about something that you aren't aware of or you don't know what I'm talking about. For example, let's say you come to a conversation here after the service and Cousin Joe is, you hear him say, I am tall. I'm sorry. You hear him say, I am short. Now, Cousin Joe is six foot four. Does that make sense for him to say, I am short? Well... No, not from the standpoint of normal North American males. Six foot four is a tall male. 
So we don't have a good frame of reference or a point of reference. We don't know what he's talking about. But maybe he was talking about professional basketball players. Then six foot four might be short. Or maybe he was talking about the trees in his yard. You see, point of reference is how we understand that kind of language. I am tall. What's the point of reference that God gives here? I am who I am. The only possible point of reference for God is God. And so while there's things that I think we learn about this name of God, this description he gives of himself, we're still left with some uncertainty and some mystery because the only way to define him is by himself. God does reveal himself to us. There are many things that we can know about God, and there are many ways that we can know God. But at the end of the day, we will not know everything. I find this reassuring, because if I could know God completely, if I could understand him in every part, he wouldn't be bigger than I am. And I need a God that is bigger than I am. Turn with me now to Exodus 19, and we want to look at another story. Again, it's a familiar story, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, assuming that you are familiar with it. We're going to read Exodus 19, verse 1, then skipping to verses 9 through 11, and then 16 through 20. Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they unto the wilderness of Sinai. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Verse 16, And it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that the people, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And the mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in a fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And, the, and when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him, by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, upon the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Notice some of the manifestations of power that are, that are given here. There were sounds, thunders, a loud trumpet. They saw things like a thick cloud and lightning and smoke and fire. 
I think they probably smelled things, if there was smoke anyway. And they felt things. The mountain quaked. It said the, the whole mountain quaked greatly. And it says that the people trembled. If you've ever been so afraid that your legs shook, or maybe your whole body shook, you know what these folks were experiencing. I enjoy news stories, reading about what's happening in the world. And I remember reading just over a year ago about an explosion in the Middle East, in Lebanon, where an ammonium nitrate, a building housing this fertilizer, exploded. Then a city, a port in a city, population of the city about two million, that explosion blew a crater about 400 feet across and about 40 feet deep. Homes six miles away were damaged. The blast was felt 150 miles away, and it left 300,000 people homeless. Incredible power. And I feel in awe when I read that kind of account, or perhaps even watch video footage of the explosion. And then I think of these folks who were at Mount Sinai, observing God coming down on the top of the mountain. And I say, no wonder they trembled. I find it really, really interesting here. We didn't read all the verses of this story, but if you look in verses, well, let me just read verses 12 and verse 21. God warns the people against, about coming too close. I think God knew this power would over, overwhelm them. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up unto the, into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. So the second verse there is after Moses has gone up. God says, Hey, go back and, and warn the people. What's the people's response been all along? I'm not sure they're even wanting to get anywhere close to the mountain. Look at verses 18 and 19. The people saw this. They went farther away. They removed, it says. They stood afar off. They were, they were fearful. It's in that context that Moses acts. He had experienced, he was experiencing the very same things that the rest of these people were experiencing. They went away. God said to Moses, come up, and he did. He went, he moved closer to this powerful God, this demonstration of God. And it's a response, of course, to God's invitation, or perhaps command, But Moses was not running. Rather, and we'll get to this in just a little bit, he doesn't only go up, but in his interaction with God, he asks for more revelation. I want to see you. I want to see more of this. So let's turn to Exodus 33 and 34, where we have the, fourth, the third story here. 
it's all, I guess this is all kind of part of the same story, but, but here we have the account of Moses asking for and seeing God. I'm not really going to read all of this either. The context again here is that, that the, we've had the golden calf, uh, idolatry in the intervening chapters here. And now in chapter 33, Moses asks God to show him his glory. Let's read verses 13 through 18. Moses speaking, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he, Moses, said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And in response to that request, God, in essence, says, Okay, but with limitations. Going on in verse 19, and he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. And then in chapter 34, verses 5 through 8, we have this meeting described a little further. 34, 5, and the Lord described, I'm sorry, and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now I've often wondered, what is it that Moses saw? Verse 5 tells us the Lord descended in a cloud again. That was an already known manifestation of God. But from the limitations described, Moses had only a very small window on which, with which, through which he saw God. I think an important part of this glimpse of God is not what Moses saw with his eyes, but 
had something to do with what God said in the verses we read at the end there, chapter 34, 5 through 8. What God said about himself. It says he proclaimed the name of the Lord. I don't know, is that the I am again or was that something else? And then he stated a, a list of important things about his character. Did you notice what they were? Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, slow to anger. Be another way to say that. It says he's abounding in goodness and truth, extending mercy and forgiveness, but not overlooking guilt. Those are the kinds of things that those are some of the characteristics, some of who God is. Very interesting that after this encounter, when Moses went down off the mountain, his face shone. He had to cover his face. Somehow the brightness of God's glory was now reflected in Moses. And that calls to mind to my mind in the New Testament what what Scripture tells us about Jesus. And by extension, about us. But first about Jesus. John 1.14 And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shows us the glory of the Father. And then in, verse, uh, in Hebrews 1, the first part of verse 3, speaking again of Jesus, who being the brightness of His glory... And the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and as we reflect his character to those around us, we too reflect that glory. So, in various ways, both the divine appearance and God's description of himself, his, his speech to Moses, underscore aspects of the nature of God. So again, it seems to me that who God is, is much more important than what he looks like. God's essence is found in his nature rather than in what can be seen of his person. That, I think, should inform me of how I think about myself and how I think about others. And the fourth story from 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read a few verses here, verses 9 through 13. And the context is... Uh, the story is about Elijah and, and his interaction with God, one of his interactions with God. The context is after three years of no rain and that contest on Mount Carmel um, with the prophets of Baal. And then on the heels of that, Queen Jezebel's anger with Elijah and, and her pursuit of him. And he flees from that. And so now we have him um, again on Mount Horeb. 
1 Kings 19, verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind rent the mountain and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? So in this glimpse of God, the Lord passes by Elijah, revealing himself to Elijah, and first there was this violent wind. It says it tore the mountains and broke the rocks. Now we have wind in Kansas, but I have never seen that kind of wind. There was an earthquake, a fire, but in none of those did Elijah perceive the presence of God. And then we have this still, small voice. And did you notice Elijah's response? Or maybe I didn't even read it. Elijah, like Moses, covered his face because he understood he was in the presence of God. It's interesting to me that in some of the other stories, God was very present in the power. But here, it wasn't. That wasn't where Elijah saw God. There were those manifestations of power. But in all of that, there was no form again. I'm very, very bound by the physical. The things I see and touch and work with seem very real to me. But God is not physical, not in, in a primary way. He is spirit, and he calls us to conform to his likeness first in spirit. And then as he transforms us and gives us his nature, that works itself out in our interactions, in the physical things of life, the ways we do our work, the ways we speak to each other. Our actions testify that we are like him. Jesus describes this testifying of our actions this way in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Peter says much the same in 1 Peter 2, 12. Having your conversation, the Greek word there means your conduct or the way you live. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, 
glorify God. See, the things we do, who we are and the things we do, shouldn't cause people to look only at us, but through us to God. So again, as in the glimpse of Moses, that Moses had of God, we have some mystery here, even in this personal revelation. But I find it interesting here that God is not found in the manifestation of power, but in that still small voice, in the communication of God to Elijah. That's where Elijah saw God, heard God, understood his presence to be. Where do I seek for God? Where do you seek for God? Is it in the experiences of life? That wind that Elijah heard, saw, felt, not sure how far back in the cave he was at that time, that wind was dramatic. That was impressive. That would have been quite an experience. Is that where we go to seek God? Or do we seek him by cultivating relationship with him? That's much less dramatic. That happens when I take time to sit and read scripture, to pray and meditate. That happens when I respond to the nudges of the Holy Spirit about an area in my life that needs attention or about a word of encouragement to give to a brother in the church. God revealed himself to Elijah in a still small voice in the quiet, soft sound of a whisper. Jesus, the full manifestation of God to man, came in humility and grace, not in some kind of dramatic, overthrow the Romans sort of power, but rather in a humble, self-sacrificing, um, as the Lamb of God. And through that, showed us God's heart and reconciled us to the Father. Again, Elijah's response here, covering his face. Because he understood that he was in the presence of one much greater than himself. And if we were to read further in the passage, we'd see that there was an obedient response for Elijah too. God gave him some directives, and Elijah carried those out. Perhaps even, and I think this is, I think this is accurate, I think there is a humility in Elijah's response. It seems that God's communication here with Elijah included a bit of a rebuke, a bit of a correcting of Elijah's understanding of what really was happening. And we don't have time to go into that this morning. So as we seek to follow God in the challenges and opportunities of life, in the difficulties, in the problems we encounter, are we giving him the proper space in which to work? Or 
Are we making him too small, limiting him? Who is our God? Is he big enough? Well, my thoughts about God don't change his essence. Your thoughts don't change him either. He is who he is. But I think we limit God's work in our own hearts when our understanding of who he is and what he wants to do is too small. We'll never understand the fullness of God. There is going to be mystery. There's going, there are going to be things unknown because he is God. And our response should rightly be humility when we recognize that. Worship. Perhaps we should cover our faces. Perhaps we should take off our shoes. We see power, an awesome power, more powerful than any explosion that has ever rocked the earth. Our response should be a response of proper fear. And yet, even in those things, God calls us like Moses to come near. Who is this God? His essence is found in his character, in his being. And I reflect, we reflect his glory best and most fully when we are like him in character. That's a deeper and more complete likeness than any external likeness might be. Of course, it will express itself in the ways we interact, in external ways. But it starts with our character. And fourthly, God is found in relationship rather than in dramatic experiences. Experiences may be dramatic. God does work in those ways. But let's not go seeking him in those experiences. Let's seek him in relationship. He calls us to relationship. And communion with God is not primarily knowing about him. Oh, that was a powerful act. That's good. We should know about God. But first and foremost, we want to know him and abide in him. And out of that oneness with him, live as he wants us to live. I'd like to close with some verses from Philippians 3. You may just listen. I'm going to skip some parts. But, it, but it's a section from Philippians 3, 7 through 14. The Apostle Paul writing. And I, I pray this is our prayer. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Brethren, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God 
in Christ Jesus. Let's kneel for prayer. Father, we bow this morning because we have gotten glimpses of you, limited though they are, incomplete in our understanding as we are. We have seen enough, though, to recognize that you are great. I pray that each one of us would respond with humility and obedience daring to draw near, relating to you and others in ways that reflect your character and that call others to repentance and to seeking you and to seeing you so that you are glorified by our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.